So anyways, uh, great to be with you. And this morning, we're continuing the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Last week, we looked at some of the struggles that we go through and we try to live the, the abundant Christian life. And uh, if you did not get my email this week, then you probably will not get this email that I have to be done on time because I have to run up to my office to send it out at 10 o'clock so you all can get it. But uh, I sent an email out this week, and it's interesting to me. I just want to quote from it. Uh, whenever I go to Kaiser Permanente uh, Health, and I feel like I'm going to have to if I'm never going to get over my sinus infection, but uh, whenever I go there, it says there's a big word that they use, thrive. They like that word thrive. I don't know if they still use it, but that's a big marketing thing that they have is to thrive. And then I read this week about this uh, terrible diagnosis called FTT, failure to thrive. It's where like a little baby is diagnosed as failure to thrive because the baby is not growing. And uh, there's something going on that is prohibiting that little child to thrive. And I don't want us to ever be people who are spiritually diagnosed as FTT, failure to thrive. And there may be some of us who feel that way, and that's why I quoted, I love this uh, quote from W.E. Sankster, who is one of the great saints of uh, a few generations ago, uh, preached 16 years in Westminster over there in uh, England, and uh, really survived the Nazi blitz when they bombed London. He's down in those bomb shelters. You know what he's doing the bomb shelters? He's preaching and witnessing for Jesus Christ, even as the bombs rain down on them. So he's a godly saint who lived through very torturous and difficult days. But he wrote in one of his journals, and this is an amazing thing that people write these things down for publication for other people to read. And I don't think anybody just sort of stole it from him, but this is what he wrote. He says, I am a minister of God, and yet my private life is a failure in these ways. And then he lists these failures. He says, A, I am irritable and easily put out. I'm irritable and easily put out. How many of us would write that down and say, you know, that's how I feel today. Did I see some hands there? Okay. B, I am impatient with my wife and children. C, I am deceitful in that I often express private annoyance when a caller is announced and then simulate pleasure when I actually greet them. D, from an examination of my heart, I conclude that most of my study has been crudely ambitious, that I wanted degrees more than knowledge and praise rather than equipment for service. E, even in my preaching, I fear that I am more often wondering what people think of me than what they think about my Lord and His Word. That's a reality that most preachers who are honest would admit to. I have long felt in a vague way that something was hindering the effectiveness of my ministry, and I must conclude that that something is my failure to live the truly Christian life. And then G, I'm driven in pain to conclude that the girl who has lived as a maid in my house for more than three years has not felt drawn to the Christian life because of me. That's a guilt complex. And besides that, as a pastor, I wonder, how do you get someone as a maid to live in your house for three years? Anyways, that's a whole other thing. And I encourage you to follow along in the bulletin this morning because I want us to be able to understand this is the roadmap i want to fill it in as we go along the roadmap of romans chapter 8 that i believe was paul's redemptive word after romans 7 romans 7 is kind of his failure to thrive 
is he talks about doing the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I should do and kind of this back and forth and the struggle whether before Christ, after Christ. It's a spiritual struggle and it's not thriving. So Romans 8 is the thriving Christian life. Let me read some of the passage of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending His own Son in the likeness of a sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me just stop there. I've got four things that we want to look at. I want us to be able to see the road map that God calls us to be confident, not ashamed because we're set free from condemnation. Be focused, not distracted because I'm set free by my mind and the Spirit of God. Be empowered, not discouraged because I am set free to live in the power of the Spirit of God. And be loved by Christ, not fearful because I'm adopted as His child. I see Paul giving us at least those four ingredients to help us to thrive in our spiritual journey. And that's why I want us to be people who are set free by Jesus. And here's the first one that sets us free, that we can be confident, not ashamed, not ashamed, because I am set free from condemnation, sin, and death. Again, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, And the word condemnation actually means punishment. There is no punishment. There will be no court case. There will be no trial. There will be no condemnation for those of us who have sinned against holy God. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on for what the law could not do, because the law cannot save anybody. Why did we get the law? Let me remind you from last week. The law from God, the Old Testament, there are 613 laws that have been accumulated, but the law of the Old Testament of the Ten Commandments, to say the least. We can never obtain that law. We can never obey that law 100%. So why does God give us the law? God gave us the law not to save us. God gave us the law to point out that we can't keep the law. God gave us the law to realize how high in standard His righteousness is. And so that I realize if that's the law, that's the demand, that's what God expects, I can't do that. So I say, as Paul says, who will help me from this? As Paul says in Romans 7, 24, who will set me free from this law? So he says, that's the law that could not do that. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did it. So I need God to do that. Sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh as an offering for sin. So he offered his life for my sin so I could be saved. And he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Condemnation of us? No. Condemnation of our sin? Absolutely. And it's a little bit, and I don't want to be unfair to the text, but you know we often say that we love the sinner but not the sin. 
That's what's going on. As he said earlier in the passage, no condemnation for us, but then he goes on to say, yes, condemnation of my sin. He's going to punish the sin, but he's not going to punish us. So Jesus dies on that cross to punish all the sin I've ever committed and all the sins I will ever commit. All those sins are being punished by Jesus. But he says, Dave, I've set you free. You are free from that. I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. You can imagine a God looking at our lives and saying, I'm not going to hold, you, hold that sin against you anymore. You are free. And so he goes on, and let me just show us. We're confident because we're no longer fearful of death. God has set us free so that death is something we no longer have to fear because we know where we're going. Romans 8.23, as we'll see next week. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's where we're set free. The, we're waiting for that redemption of our body. Those of us who have believed in Jesus are partially saved. We will not be completely saved until we die because then the body will be saved. Right now the body is not saved. I'm just looking around the room, it's pretty evident that our bodies have a long ways to go to be saved, right? As you look at me, you'd say the same thing. So there's that kind of reality that is out there. We're waiting for this rental to be consumed by an owned home of Jesus. We're confident because no sin can control me, as he says in verse 3. And they were confident because the law is fulfilled in me. Everything that God requires of the law is fulfilled in me as I trust in Jesus. I'm set free from the requirements of the law because God now looks at me and says, Dave, you're keeping all 613 laws as far as I count. That's an amazing thing to think that God looks at me and sees Jesus and sees every law fulfilled. And so, you know, you, you know Matt uh, mentioned that sometimes there may be some of us who are married who get in trouble with our spouses. If you're in trouble with, say, in my case, with my wife, Joy, all I have to do is say, but I have fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Can't you see what God sees? You think that would work? I don't think so either. So It's craziness. But it's that kind of a concept that he's talking about here. That why do I keep holding down people that God has set free? Why do I keep requiring of people things that God says, I have fulfilled that? Why don't I just live up to this calling that God has placed before me? I have an example of that. One of the guys that you'll see on the Right Now Media is a fellow by the name of Matt Chandler. He's got a church in Texas, big church, one of these. Uh, he's, he's kind of like there's about a dozen kind of big time preachers across America now, and he's one of those dozen or so. And they're on all the, the concert tours and, and websites and things like that. And, and he talked about, uh, after going to one of these conferences that he was speaking at, that it was within 20 minutes of the town in which he grew up in Texas. So he drives to that little town where he grew up as a kid. And he remembers driving down the streets where his home was, and there was his old home. Then he drove down another street, and there was a home of a neighbor kid. And he says, when I was with that kid, and we did stuff inside that home, things that were unspeakable that I cannot believe I went to and did. Then I went to another building, and that building was a party, and I did things at that party that I, are just unspeakable, unmentionable, horrible things that I did as a kid and uh, should never have done. And so he says, I went by building after building, and they, they, those buildings spoke to me in memories of those terrible things that I had done in all those rooms and those structures. 
And it kind of brought back the memory of sort of that past life of sin and, and failure to really thrive by Jesus Christ. And then he heard a little voice in his head, and it was the voice of saying, Matt, you're a preacher of the Word, and you did all those things. You claim to stand before conferences and tell people how to live their lives, and, and do you remember all the things that you've done? He said, little voice was just talking him down. Shame and blame was going on in his heart. Then he came back to the Word, and he sees these things that in Romans 8 it tells him, but I've been set free. You come back to Jesus. Whenever I am no longer confident but now living in shame, I come back to Jesus and says, but Jesus has fulfilled those things for me. Jesus has set me free from sin. Jesus has set me free from the law. Now I want to live in confidence in that truth. And that's what he's claiming. So that it leads to this point, that I want to be focused, not distracted. So as I understand my confidence in Christ that I'm not condemned, now I begin focusing on those things that He calls me to. So I'm focused, not distracted, because I am set free through my mind, set on the Spirit of God. So I live in confidence so that my mind will now adjust to the new reality of being set free. Notice again the text in Romans 8. For those who are according to the flesh and I highlight the word minds because it's used four times. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, believers in Jesus, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set in the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind. He says, what your mind focuses on. We have a choice. My mind is going to focus on the flesh. My mind is going to focus on the spirit. My mind is going to focus on those things of this world or my mind's going to focus on the things of the Spirit of God. I've got a choice to make. Where my mind goes determines how my life is lived. And so I am confident, not ashamed. That doesn't mean that I therefore abuse the system, that somehow I can sin and get away with it because now my mind has to focus on those things that God has called me to. That's how you thrive. You thrive by putting your mind in the things of the Spirit of God so that I focus my mind on the things of the Spirit. Verse 5. That is so critical. For example, in Colossians, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things in the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Set your mind to things above. That's why we're doing Right Now Media. Right Now Media allows us to continuously focus our things on Christ, on what He says, and how He has us live our lives. That will cause my life to thrive in Jesus Christ. Now let me just take a little excursion to show you how, and this is going to be a, a long excursion, and so hang in there with me, to show you how science is catching up with the Bible. 
right? I love it when science comes alongside and says, oh yeah, uh, we know that, and that's what's happening today. Uh, Ron gave me a, a copy of the new National Geographic and some of the science of the new science of the brain. They're beginning to understand the brain in sort of these amazing new ways. So when the Apostle Paul says, your mind set of the Spirit of the, of the Lord, he knows what he's talking about because God has designed that brain that is the mind that causes me to be able to focus on those things that are from him, not focus on those things of my flesh, my fleshly desires, my sinful desires. So I have a choice. Is my mind going to be on the flesh or the Spirit? So the mind works in an amazing way. Now, I have, and I don't know that it's on right now media, but I would encourage you, if you haven't taken the time, and uh, it's a book that I have mentioned previously as well, but there is a book out called The Anatomy of the Soul. I want to share with you. I've talked about it, but I've never gotten into it. I encourage you to take a look at that book. And uh, Randy can get it for you over here at the bookstore. Oh, by the way, everything that you spend in the bookstore goes to ministry here. It doesn't pay Randy's salary. It goes to ministry. All profits go to ministry here. So as you would choose uh, where you would buy your literature, Calvary Church is a good place to start. And in that book, uh, The Enemy Soul, is written by a Christian psychiatrist. This guy knows what he's talking about. He talks about what is called the prefrontal cortex. That's this portion of our brain that is right up in here. So if I could peel away my skull, you would see my prefrontal cortex. You don't want to hit it too hard right there. Um, That is where all things that are important for us to be able to think and rationalize and and, uh, have logical uh, thought takes place. He says, in this prefrontal cortex... I'm able to discern and decide between conflicting thoughts and feelings. I'm able to distinguish the difference between immediate gratification and long-term consequences. I'm able to create mental sense of expectations and what is necessary to achieve the desired goal. And it's linked with our ability to generate emotional states and cognition that temper and regulate salient, pleasure-driven feelings, thoughts, and behaviors and restrain our behavior so we don't simply act on impulse. This prefrontal cortex is that part of my brain that causes me to say, my flesh wants to do that, but the brain kicks in and says, Dave, delayed gratification so that you do not act on impulse. You don't buy that. You don't eat that. You don't hit him or whatever that may be, that active, that little impulse, right? We get these little impulses that come along and this prefrontal cortex, it kicks in by the power of God so that I then resist and restrain behavior that's not consistent with the things of the Spirit. So there's that fleshly desire. Here are some of the things this prefrontal cortex regulates in our body. Body regulation. It makes sure that my sympathetic system is operating properly. Attuned communication so I can connect with another person's mind. Emotional balance so that I can have an ability to have a balanced emotional life. Response flexibility so I have the capacity to demonstrate restraint. To allow enough time so that emotionally I do not react, but I have enough time for logic to say that would be a stupid thing to hit that cop because he gave you a ticket. Right? It's that kind of a thing. It is empathy. It's the ability to see and feel what another person is feeling. 
Because things, the mindset on the flesh says, I only care about what I feel. A mindset on the spirit says, no, no, I care more about what you feel. Because the spirit has told me in Philippians that I should look out for the benefit of others more than myself. The prefrontal cortex is that place that I implant biblical truth so that my mind says, I care more about what you think than what I think. I care more about what you feel than what I feel. It is given to us insight so we can make sense of life. Because there's a lot of us that go through life and when tragic things happen, here's what happens. We begin to say, well, why did I lose my job? Why did I get cancer? Why am I in this uh, terrible state of depression? Why has God allowed my children to be so sick? And we have all these why questions. And then we begin to think, well, God's not fair. God is unjust. God is not good. And when the Word of God is in my prefrontal cortex, it helps to give insight to say, wait a second. The question is not, why did God do that? The question is, what is God teaching me through this? How is God going to form the character of Christ more in me through this experience? The prefrontal cortex implanted with the Scriptures helps me to have insight about what God is doing. It also gives to me intuition. And the last thing he mentioned about in the the book is that the prefrontal cortex helps to guide my morality. The prefrontal cortex has been shown to actively involved as we construct our sense of morality in the world, considering not only our own good, but the welfare of others. It's our capacity to do those things. And so when God talks about the mind, He's talking about the prefrontal cortex, that part of my brain that must function at a high level. And here's the thing that He emphasizes the most. He goes on to talk about in the book that the key for my mind is that it would fully integrate all other aspects of my brain. And here's, the, here's something that I've been learning lately. You notice on the screen, the very front part of that, the prefrontal cortex there, and then deep down inside the brain is this thing called the amygdala. The amygdala, a little red dot that you see in there, it's, we've all got them, seem deep down in our brain. The amygdala is that little thing that is the best I understand it, is my emotional mechanism. It is that thing that drives my emotions. It is that thing that, that in my own immaturity I will react and say or do something awfully stupid. And if that little amygdala is sort of fired up and doesn't have proper restraint given to it, it's going to override everything that we want to do. And in selfishness, we will react in a very sinful and hurtful way to other people. The beauty of what the Word of God can do is the Word of God gets into my prefrontal cortex, gives me truth, gives me knowledge, gives me insight, gives me capacity to restrain. And what the integration of the brain must do is to integrate the prefrontal cortex with the amygdala. So the amygdala says, I am in submission to the prefrontal cortex. Where you find trouble are people who say the amygdala is overriding the prefrontal cortex. The amygdala is taking charge. The amygdala, and this is the way some people put it to me, the prefrontal cortex is sort of my adult. The amygdala is my child. And often the child will reign supreme. And so what we have to do is this. I feel the child rising up. I'm standing in line at Vaughn's. 
and the line says 10 items or more in the grocery basket. I'm counting the basket in the front of me because she's got 15 items. My amygdala begins to rise up and says, that's not right, that's not fair. Tell her something about that so that she is in the proper line. And that's a low-level low issue, obviously. Uh, but it's that kind of a thing. But then the prefrontal cortex says, Dave, grow up. It's only 10 items. It's only 15 items. What's the big deal? Insight. How much longer is it going to require to stand there? No big deal. Don't worry about it. Let it go. So the prefrontal cortex implanted with Scripture overrides this emotional childlike amygdala that's in my mind that wants to override that and destroy it. And here's the thing. When Scriptures come along, Scriptures help to integrate my brain so it works together in harmony. And some of the things that uh, the doctor, psychiatrist says to help that full integration of the brain includes uh, autobiographic storytelling where brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ sit together in a small group and they write and tell their story. You write and tell the story of what you've done and how you felt when you did it. You begin to tell the story what God has done. He says, by doing that, you begin to holistically understand how you felt, what you did, what you said, and you begin to integrate in the story as others listen to you and they give feedback. And I thought, that's what life groups should be, where the autobiographical storytelling takes place and I am able to fully integrate how I felt and what I said and what I did so that this full brain and the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex are all beginning to work together. He says, another thing that you do to help with full integration of the brains of the mind is all that it should be and functions at a high level of integration so that it overrides some of the impulses that you don't want to do and shouldn't do that are of the flesh. He says, one of the other things you do is centering, where you take Galatians 5 and it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, here is an exercise of centering to have the attention of your mind. Take each of those items, one a day, love. So all day long, my mind is thinking about the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Love, joy. Tuesday, joy. All my mind is thinking of the joy of Christ and what Scripture teaches. And you go by one by one, centering the mind, because the mind begins to fire, that you begin to build pathways in the brain that may or may not be there. Because he said there's an exercise that actually builds new pathways in your brain. And he's got a fancy term for it, plasticity or something like that, neuroplasticity, where you begin to build these new pathways. And he says some of the other things that you can do is to have the spiritual disciplines of meditation. Meditation. The study of God's Word. Times of prayer. Fasting. Where you have these, these spiritual disciplines and they're all designed by God to make those things happen. So the mind is set on the things of the spirit. The mind is not set on the things of the flesh. And scientists learn that. There's so much in one of the Psalms that David writes. David writes, God, give me an undivided heart. Teach me your ways. So he says, teach me your ways so that I might have an undivided heart. What he is, in essence now, science would tell us, keep my brain from being undivided. Help my brain to have the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala work together in unity, not undivided. Because when they're undivided, 
You've got an impulse-driven, emotionally rebellious, angry person. But united, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala work together in harmony, as do the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. When they work together like that, the mindset and the things of the Spirit causes me to be able to live the life that Christ has given to us. Because our brain is just an amazing thing. Look at all these things that it pulled up. That all the things of the brain, it's just an evolution is an amazing thing that it caused my brain to be able to do all those things, right? Isn't it just amazing how that just sort of happened that way? No, this is what God created. God created the brain. He's got this map of the brain. He says, I want all these things to fire together. So the Apostle Paul tells us in this text, that's why it's so important to get it, and so many times it's repeated over and over and over and over in the Word, that set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Because the mind set on the Spirit is able to live this life in a healthy, dynamic way. Because God says, that's how I created you. I created your brain to work together as a mind that is able to fully function in a highly integrated way. Because then you live. Then you live the life of thriving in your spiritual journey. And so he says in verses 6 and 7 and 8, you begin to live in peace. You know, when the magnal is in charge, you live in conflict. But when you have the fully integration of the brain, you live in peace. He talks about their life and peace, he says there. And then verses 7 and 8, as I've already read, so I'm able to please God. I honor Him. Because when my mind is total, totally mature as it should be, suddenly it's not so much, God, what's in it for me? When my mind is mature and is driven by the power of God's Word, when the Word of God is designed to make me function the way I should function, I'm not out to live my life for me. I'm out to live my life for Him. Mature believers who have the mind of Christ are believers who live for others. They're other-oriented. Philippians 4 again, or Philippians 2, I should say. That I don't look out for my own interests, but I look out for the interest of others. When the mind of Christ is in me, it's a natural f- response to the mind on the Spirit. And then when it happens, what happens is integration of the Spirit of God. Be empowered, not discouraged, because I am set free to live in the power of God's Spirit. See, you take the mind, you got the Word, it's coming in, and then he goes on to explain what happens when it comes into your mind. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. See, the Holy Spirit comes into my heart. Once I believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God is in me. He dwells in me. He takes up residence in me. And when the Spirit is in me, I am now empowered by that Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches my mind... God's Word. I regularly pray. I regularly pray. And it's based on 1 Corinthians 2. Holy Spirit, illumine my mind. Show me something in the Word I've not seen before. We all should pray that prayer. That the Spirit would dwelling in me cause my mind to have insight, instruction, guidance, so my mind is not divided so that it receives the truth and reveals new insights that I've not seen before. 
You cannot pray that prayer for a book written by a man or a woman. But you pray that prayer, God, Holy Spirit, illumine my mind to your word. There's a miracle that's going to take place. And you're going to suddenly see things that even if you read that a, a thousand times before, the Spirit of God begins to open our minds to truth that I had not seen. It's an amazing thing to, to read through a book and then you can read through it uh, some years later and say, I feel like I never read that before because there's insights that begin to take place. I am empowered to overcome a sin and weakened body. As he says here in verse 10, just to remind ourselves again, he says this, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of the sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. I am able to have power over this fleshly body that wants to dictate to me how to live my life in a selfish, self-centered way. No, the Spirit of God helps me to overcome a weakened body so I can live for Him. And then it's empowered to be raised up to the heaven in the future, as it says in verse 11, But the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is going to give my body a resurrected body. That's so powerful that we would know that. Because Romans uh, verses 12 and 13 also goes on to say that we're empowered to live a righteous life for Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, we are under, we are under obligation not to the flesh but to the Spirit. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then the last point I want to make is this. We're loved in Christ, not fearful. When the Spirit of God comes in me, He helps my mind to understand God's Word, but He also gives me assurance as to who I am in Jesus Christ. I have a brand new identity. I'm a brand new person. Not fearful because I'm adopted. Notice what it says in Romans 8. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children heirs, and also heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Yeah, that's, a, that's a ton of stuff. That's a ton of stuff. But here's the essence of what I'd like for us to take away from that. We are loved so that as we cry. Notice what he says he cries. He cries there. But uh, he says, the spirit of, uh, For you have not re- received the spirit of slavery leading into fear, but again the spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He loves to hear us cry. We cry out. And the word Abba, a term that means more in the sense of Daddy. Daddy, help me. Help me with this. Help my mind. Help the Spirit to grow in me. Help me to yield more completely to Him. Help me to know that no matter what I've done, I'm still accepted by You. Help me to know that You will never cast me out. Give me assurance. It's an interesting thing. Adoption in the days in which Paul wrote about adoption. Adoption in the Roman citizenry goes like this. Someone says, I want to adopt that child, to take it from a family that should not properly care for that child. And when that father would adopt the child, he would bring that child into his home, and every past debt, every past obligation, every past restraint and requirement that was put upon that child by the previous family... It's completely forgiven and erased. 
So when a child is adopted by a new Roman family, then that past is history. It's gone. It's put away. It's no longer brought up. And then once that adopted child is placed into the new Roman family, everything that that father now currently owns and will have becomes immediately that child's. And he will become heir to it. And in some cases, the adopted child rises to a higher rank than the naturally born child in that same family. And so this is the power of adoption. When Paul talks about adopting, he says, I'm placing you in a family where your past debt, your past obligation, those past requirements, all those terrible things that the flesh wants you to do, God's forgiven them. He's removed them from you. So we're empowered to be accepted. We cry out. We're loved to be reassured that I am His child. God never wants us wondering about that. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He gives us that assurance. And then finally, we're loved so that we're co-heirs with Jesus. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Well, there's a ton of stuff here. We're heirs with Christ. Let me just finish with this. It's interesting to me that in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is going to be baptized, not because he's a sinner, but to identify the people. And after Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water. Remember what the Father said to Jesus? Anybody? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What is he saying? He said, you are my Son. I give you assurance. I give you support. Because in Matthew 3 goes on to Matthew 4. You know what happens in Matthew 4? Satan comes along. Satan attacks him. Satan challenges Jesus. Satan goes after him ruthlessly to destroy his calling as a child of God. And the Father knew that. So the Father comes to the Son and says, I am so pleased with you, Son. Now you're going to go into this world and Satan's going to attack you. But in your assurance as my child, in the power of the Spirit, the dove came down. He already had, he was the Spirit of God. He is God himself. But the Spirit came down like a dove to show him the Spirit is upon you. Now you're going to go out into that world. And that world is going to try to tear you apart. And it begins with Satan. And before Jesus went out there, Jesus spent time fasting and praying the spiritual disciplines and the person in the world with a perfect prefrontal cortex is Jesus Christ. Because his perfect mind had a perfect knowledge of a perfect word called the Old Testament Torah, Isaiah as well, and Psalms. He knew all the word. So that word flushed out in his mind as he fasted and prayed and then was tempted by Satan. And he overcame the temptation because he was spiritually disciplined, spiritually prepared, and spiritually blessed by the Father. That's for you and me. That's why Romans 8 teaches us that you have the Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Daughters or sons, you are my children. I am well pleased with you. I have the Spirit in you. I have given to you the Word. The mind set on the spirit of things will give you an ability to overcome because as we go out in this world, because we're sitting here in this room and you're trying to politely listen to me and not fall asleep, but we're all going to go out there. We're going to go out there this afternoon. And just like Jesus from Matthew 3 to chapter 4 went out to Satan's world, 
We're going to go out back into Satan's world. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, Satan. We're going to go out there. And we need to have these things that we've just discussed today firmly part of our lives if we're going to thrive. Because believers that have failure to thrive are believers that don't understand the very simple stuff we just went through. Where the mind, I'm confident, the spirit, I'm empowered, and I'm an heir with Jesus Christ because I'm adopted into his family. I go out with that knowledge. I've got strength to thrive no matter what the enemy may bring my way. Let me pray for us that we would capture that. Father God, I thank you that you've given to us some very profound things, and they're so important. They're so, they're so critical if we want to have a thriving Christian life. I pray, Father, that we would understand it and that our hearts would feel confident, not shame, that our minds would know your truth so that our minds are fully integrated in, in the way that allows us to live a healthy life. And that, Lord, that Spirit is giving us capacity beyond what human flesh alone allows. And that, Father, we would live with a reassurance that we are loved by you, we are adopted by you, that we have an identity with you, and that we have an inheritance from you, that we live in that truth, that our minds fully understand and integrate it into our lives. Father, thank you for these things. And Lord, as part of our thank you to you, that we want to please you. It's not about us, it's about you. God, we bring offerings as one way that says, it's not my money, it's yours. It's not mine to keep, it's yours for ministry. Help us to understand, help our minds to understand that we are here for others. And out of that, the offerings are for others. We thank you for it as we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.